Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Welcome to this Institute for Government live event on how COVID-19 has changed the way government works. And this is also the event where we're launching Whitehall Monitor 2022. That's the latest edition of our annual report on the size, shape and performance of government. I'm Alex Thomas. I'm a programme director at the IFG and part of the team across the whole institute that worked on the report. When we were putting it together, we were thinking particularly about uh, the, what the data in the report told us about how decisions were made in responding to COVID and its new variants over the last year or so. And we were thinking about how COVID following Brexit significantly increased the size of the government and particularly the civil service. What does that, that tell us about resilience and capacity in the British state? And today we're at a sobering moment as the Prime Minister is due to address Parliament over the deepening crisis in Ukraine. How good is the national British government at discharging its responsibilities for foreign and security policy, but also healthcare, public services, uh, and all while, as we've seen in the last few months, a political scandal rocks the Prime Minister. So to help us cover all of that, send in your questions. Use the button on your screens. If you can, if you can say who you are and where you're from and uprate the questions that you'd like to see answered. I'll do my best to keep an eye on the most popular ones and try and ask them to the panel. And follow us on Twitter at IFG events and with the hashtag IFGWM22. So we've got a fantastic panel to help us cover these questions and others. Damien Glenis Stacey is the chair of the new Office for Environmental Protection and someone who really knows her way around government. She's also been chair, uh, chief regulator at Ofqual twice, chief inspector of probation and head of the Animal Health Agency, amongst many other things across government. William Ragg is the member of parliament for Hazel Grove and is chair of the Public Administration and Constitutional Affairs Committee, which scrutinises the cabinet office and the work of government reform. So for our purposes today, he is the perfect MP to have uh, on the panel. Charlotte Pickles is director of the think tank reform, has been a special advisor and has worked at the Centre for Social Justice, as well as elsewhere in the public and private sector. And Matthew Holhouse is a uh, correspondent on British politics at The Economist, and I hope you won't mind me saying, is a particularly keen watcher of developments for good and ill in Whitehall and Westminster. But before we hear from them, I'm gonna hand over to my colleague, Rhys Klein, uh, who was also part of that uh, team working on Whitehall Monitor this year. And he's just for a few minutes gonna take us through some of the headlines from the report. Rhys. Thanks, Alex. Uh, this year's report explores two uh, principal questions about the performance of central government. Firstly, uh, what was the impact of COVID on government last year? How did it affect government size, makeup and the work that it does? And secondly, what does this mean for how the government is set up to achieve its plans in 2022? We've analysed these questions through the lenses of the civil service, the work of ministers, government spending, comms and transparency, digital and arms length body, uh, bodies. So I'm going to just, as Alex said, whip through a few of our key findings to begin the discussion. So uh, we see the impact of COVID on government, firstly, in the accelerated growth of the civil service. Uh, there were more than 470,000 officials by September last year, a 10% increase on the year before. Unsurprisingly, as this chart shows, uh, the biggest proportional growth fell by some distance on the Department of Health and Social Care, which nearly doubled in the year up to September, topping out at more than 4,000 officials. But the biggest growth in absolute numbers came in the much larger uh, Department of Work and Pensions. And conversely, the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office was the only department to shrink in the year up to September uh, 2021, reducing by 7% in that time. As you can see by this chart, what that means for the civil service is that it has grown by about 88,000 people or 23% since the EU referendum in 2016, bringing it back to the size it was in 2010 prior to the staffing cuts made by the coalition government. 
the government has announced plans to relocate nearly 15,000 civil service roles around the UK by the middle of this decade, uh, as you can see from the map on screen. And most of these moves were reported uh, recently in the Leveling Up white paper. This is a, a promising step towards the government's target of moving 22,000 civil service roles outside of London by the end of the decade. But uh, the relocation agenda will be made more difficult by the fact that the civil service grew disproportionately in London last year. The uh, number of officials working in the capital grew by 11%, the highest uh, of any region in the UK. The growth of the civil service in London partly reflects the increase of the number of officials working on policy, which increased by about 17% in the year up to March 2021. Uh, the Department of Health and Social Care alone had around a thousand more policy officials than it did at the start of the pandemic, with a, a similar increase seen at the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy. This trend also began in 2016, as you can see from the chart on screen following the referendum, since when the policy profession has grown by nearly 12,000 staff, uh, an increase of around 71%. This is understandable given the uh, policy demands of Brexit, COVID and other issues like net zero, but the government has recently committed to reducing the uh, civil service headcount to pre-COVID levels while protecting some frontline roles and prioritising other skills, which does suggest that this growth of policy officials might need to be stemmed if that target is going to be met. For the second fiscal year in a row, the government, uh, government spending has remained very high at over one trillion pounds this year, but both spending and the deficit will be lower than they were than last year's peak. Uh, and this is also mirrored by the scale of coronavirus related support to businesses, households and public services shown on screen here, which while remaining high at 91 billion pounds uh, will fall by about half compared to last year's peak. Compared to last year's uh, uh, support, higher proportion of the spending this year has gone directly to public services, with a sharper fall in support for households directly as schemes like furlough drew to a close. Um, and of that public service spend, a greater proportion is itself being more narrowly targeted at the Department of Health and Social Care. Um, our analysis shows that just as the pandemic changed how government overall works, it has also changed how individual ministers spend their time. The number of speeches, for example, given by the health secretary has increased significantly over the last two years. Um, for instance, through Downing Street press conferences, which are included in this chart here. However, in 2021, the COP26 president, Alok Sharma, gave more speeches than any other minister, including the PM, demonstrating the importance of the COP26 conference to government. Uh, understandably, the demand for information from the government has also grown over the course of the pandemic. We can see that in the number of parliamentary questions uh, fielded by departments, which is higher than at any other point in the last decade in the last session, um, and that the Department of Health and Social Care received over 13,000 written questions, more than double that of any other department. But at the same time, the government continued a long running trend of worsening transparency, which predates COVID-19. We can see that, uh, for instance, in the chart on screen, which shows the proportion of FOI requests partially or fully withheld, which has been steadily increasing since the Freedom of Information Act came into effect in 2005. Fewer than half of FOI requests resulted in information being fully released in the first half of last year. So uh, to the second question of our report, what this means for how government is set up to achieve its plans. Well, we can look at 2021 as something of a bridging year for government. Um, what time and attention ministers and officials could apply beyond crisis management was largely spent making and setting out plans. Uh, we had the net zero strategy, white papers on health and social care reform, the declaration on government reform, plans for digital, uh, a multi-year spending review, and then more recently at the start of this year, the much awaited levelling up white paper. But we are halfway through the parliament. Um, the government has understandably lost time to the pandemic and has been distracted by controversies over standards in public life. And ministers are therefore short on time to make sure their priorities are delivered before the next election. This demands a shift in 2022 from policy making to implementation. 
And our analysis in the report of the management of the government machine suggests there are two factors to look out for that will affect the government's delivery capability. Firstly, how effectively will departments spend the extra money allocated to them in the spending review? As you can see from our analysis on screen, the uh, budget allocations were similarly generous in October's review as they were in the 2004 and 2007 uh, spending reviews under New Labour, with a more than 3% average increase to day-to-day -day spending. But they're also front-loaded, um, with most of those increases coming in the next financial year, which makes the question of effective administration all the more important. Uh, and these increases also come after a decade of cuts. All but four departments are expected to have lower budgets in real terms in 2025 than they did in 2010. And administrative budgets will also be constrained uh, with an annual increase of 1% uh, compared to the 3% in day-to-day -day spending. Uh, this creates a risk that departments might not be able to administer their increased budgets as effectively as they might want to. Secondly, how will ministers and senior officials meet the target for civil service uh, headcount reductions to pre-COVID levels by the end of the review period? This will entail a reduction of anywhere between 25 and 55,000 roles, depending on how the government chooses to protect frontline roles. Uh, and it means that ministers and senior officials face difficult decisions about how they're going to start heading towards meeting that target while not undermining the government's delivery capability. Finally, this chart comes from a paper the Institute published just before Christmas, for which colleagues analysed progress made against the 287 commitments included in the 2019 Conservative Manifesto. We found that the government is on track to complete 55% of these commitments, uh, and it is off track in key areas such as hiring healthcare workers, agreeing free trade deals, and enacting its levelling up ambitions. So, to improve the capability of central government to uh, balance its responsibilities towards long-term priorities and towards crisis management, government reform will be crucial in 2022. The Declaration on Government Reform published last year was a real signal of intent and progress has been made since then, but the government is behind schedule on achieving the 30 actions included in the declaration which it will need to do in 2022 and then go further, setting out longer term uh, plans for some of the more complex areas of reform. By ensuring that momentum is kept up on this agenda, the PM has the opportunity to improve the government's overall ability to deliver for citizens. Thank you very much. Brilliant. Thank you, uh, Rhys. A uh, 10 minute canter through government in 2022. Um, uh, and before I, I go to the panel, just another plug for questions. We, they're coming in thick and fast already, but uh, do uh, send them in, please. Um, so I'll open with, uh, you know, reflecting on that, picking up some of the uh, themes as we as we go through. I'll open with Matthew. I mean, obviously, the pandemic changed the way government works. Um, and it's become a bit of a truism about sort of uh, dropping the things that have uh, gone wrong and, uh, and and bottling the things that, that worked um, well. Um, it is obviously also right to point out the deficiencies in the government's response. But um, what do you think the government did better during the pandemic? And how do you think, whether it's on data or public services or communications, how do you think they can uh, uh, translate those uh, successes into business as whatever normal uh, uh, is now. I mean, it, it's been a it's been an extraordinary experiment in in, in many ways. In that you know, there, there are sort of three three forces bearing down on on the British government. One one was during the pandemic that obviously they had to do new things, and many of the new things that it was required to do were things that had not even been conceived of in in drills for for previous um, pandemic exercises. Things like uh, home education or enforcement shielding. Um, at the same time, the state was having to operate on, on a new set of assumptions and principles. So, so the normal sort of rules of the road of government business around what is uh, acceptable value for money, acceptable risk of, of projects failing uh, around you know, the way in which you reduce data, uh, all had to be recalibrated towards this shift from, from sort of day to day work to urgency. And at the same time, you know, create new sets of assumptions and new principles so that it wasn't a, you know, a, a complete sort of freefall, as it were. And at the same time, the third factor is that you, you have this uh, a political leadership uh, at the time that was really driving uh, a, a culture of agility and of improvisation of a, a, a perhaps a, a lower regard for the, the, the 
the, the constraints that you know, bear, bear down on, on, on civil service activity. Normally, uh, a real sort of uh, move fast and breakings culture sort of uh, represented by Dominic Cummings. So, so these things coming together, uh, you know, as much as you, you know, there was a recipe for real problems and failures, which have been well covered around you know, uh, Ofqual and Public Health England, it was also a real sort of cauldron of, of innovation, um, you know, which, which does speak to the, sort of the underlying capacity of, of, of the civil service to respond to this. Um, and it is, it is quite a long list. If you, if you look at um, cabinet level uh, to start with, uh, we saw the, the development of the uh, X zone excess committees. This is um, which took place under Brexit. This is the development of of much smaller committees to, to focus on the development of Brexit strategy and then the delivery of, of Brexit. That was replicated in COVID, uh, effectively building on supplanting the, the, the system of cabinet committees, which has been in place for, for uh, 100 years before then. Very sort of daily, high, high tempo, very focused on, on taking and executing decisions, which we know the cabinet secretary said that he, he'd like to see replicated throughout government business in future. Um, your report talks very well about, about the, the development of digital programmes which were rolled out at speed in the pandemic, uh, the vaccine booking system, the universal credit proved uh, it's, itself capable of handling a, a much higher demand uh, and uh, really quite an extraordinary effort of building the capacity to, to share data between government departments, between, between uh, local government, which is something that one would hope uh, can be built on and retained in future. Um, a third big area, which which I'm slightly contrarian on this, is uh, devolution. We, we we've seen you know a lot of focus on the conflict at the top between uh, the, the devolved governments and Whitehall over uh, funding, over lockdown policies, uh, over uh, you know dif differentiated approach to COVID. Uh, often, you know, this has become sort of a, a proxy battle for, for the debate over uh, the union versus independence. Actually, I think under under the hood, as it were. Um, there were many cases of, of the devolved governments and, and central government working quite successfully together on developing response, which made sense in a UK context whilst being differentiated in, in accordance with, 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 with the desires of, of the devolved governments and in some ways reflecting the, the, you know, the wishes of the relevant populations. Uh, and in many ways, in, in many senses, actually overcoming the what we know to be the structural weaknesses of, of uh, devolution and the way in which uh, powers are divided. So we know, you know the, the existing structures through the JMC were effectively sidelined and replaced with much more sort of an informal ad hoc uh, collaborative working. Um, there was very, very effective working between uh, the, the, the CMOs and, and the chief scientific uh, advisors of, of the devolved governments and, and, and th those uh, of the UK government uh, working through SAGE. Uh, and we, you know, we saw the capacity actually of the UK government to operate in the devolved domains in a centralised way, you know, a way that made sense. So the deployment of the British Army, the, the centralisation of, of PPE and vaccine procurement. So, so it, you know, it does show actually that for all the all the structural design flaws that were exposed in devolution in a crisis like this, they can actually be overcome, uh, you know, if, if the political will uh, is there. Uh, a, a third area, which is worth uh, a fourth area, rather, is worth noting, is um, the government's uh, statistical capacity. I think uh, the uh, Office for National Statistics uh, had, had a very, very good pandemic. Uh, there was a, a very large increase in, in publications. Uh, they had to develop new methods to, to, to measure, measure and, and gather data because of the, the, the inability to physically go into shops or interview people. Uh, and, and they produced some, some rather um, uh, powerful new new new, new uh, publications, so the, the COVID infection survey and the uh, business insights and conditions survey, which is sort of effectively a fortnightly evolving survey of, of what's happening in, in businesses, is something that I think they'll um, they'll expect to retain. Now, a fifth area, which you, you, perhaps is an, is an positive development, but it's certainly a striking one, is actually the way in which government communicates. Um, the pandemic coincided with a shift to a you know much more sort of politicised uh, Downing Street communications operation, a much more sort of aggressive uh, and slightly partisan. You can make a debate about about the virtues of that, but at the same time, the, the need for uh, public uh, cooperation for to, to bind in a, a whole of society effort. Uh, and um, you know the need to simply publicise the government's message resulted in sort of innovations. You know we, we've seen the, the the much higher tempo of of press conferences from from the prime minister and senior ministers, 
the the introduction of um, non-ministers at government press conferences, people like um, Chris Whitty and, and Patrick Valance, which is relatively um, was a relatively rare thing uh, pre-COVID. And actually things like the, you know, the COVID dashboard and the transparency around um, uh, SAGE minutes, they are, were a relative innovation, actually. And I think something that, that hopefully would, would uh, an approach that would outlast the pandemic. Thanks, Matthew. Really, um, really interesting. And I agree with a lot of the themes you picked up there. I mean, it's, it's worth just a note on devolution. And anyone who's uh, uh, looked at the report will see that we don't directly cover the uh, devolved governments there. We focus on the kind of UK, UK level government. But your points there about how they've worked together, I think I'd share your um, uh, share your uh, counterintuitive uh, uh, argument that actually some of this has happened more in lockstep than um, uh, than, than than we might have uh, picked up on from some of the uh, commentary. Um, uh, the other point, very striking, you picked up there was the nature of decision making and shifting decision making, uh, sort of the uh, more directive decision making in a crisis to more kind of collaborative, persuasive decision making. And Charlotte, I want to come to you in that sort of Reese's uh, presentation there picked out how um, uh, the spending review last year was actually pretty generous and comparable to the, the new Labour years, which is a comparison that will probably um, uh, annoy absolutely everybody. Um, but uh, on that kind of theme of the decisions shifting from command and control to, to uh, tougher slogging, uh, I mean, will those spending review investments be enough to deal with some of the uh, almost incomprehensible uh, uh, backlogs uh, in public services that we can expect uh, over the next uh, few years? And um, the cost of living uh, crisis—that uh, uh, that uh, that those two things look like being uh, aspects that will dominate politics and government for the next few years. Do you think the government's set up to to be able to uh, to take those sorts of decisions and to drive them through? I think I remember, uh, I think it was only about halfway through the Chancellor's uh, speech at the dispatch box when um, when we, we got the spending review and it was already being dubbed Brown Night. So, <laughs> so I'm not sure anyone would be terribly surprised uh, uh, that this is comparable to some of the Blair years. Um, I think there are lots of unknowns and sorry to not sound as decisive uh, or as experts, perhaps um, I, I should do on the panel, but I think we, you know, there's lots of question marks Alex, you mentioned obviously the situation in, in Ukraine around actually what, how robust our economic forecasts are uh, and obviously a lot of, of the, uh, the spending review in relation to fiscal rules and whether there's fiscal headroom, etc., is all dependent on what happens to economic growth or doesn't happen uh, to economic growth. Um, and then you have some, you know, if I was sitting in, in number 10 or in CCHQ or, or indeed anywhere on the kind of political side of government, I'd be deeply concerned right now about um, the backlogs that you mentioned and the cost of living crisis that you mentioned. And, you know, we've we've very much obsessed about the, and rightly, I think, about the elective care backlog. We will probably hit somewhere around 10 plus million people sitting on that. But actually, we've got backlogs across public services. You know, mental health backlogs are huge at the moment. We've got them in justice. We've got them in the Department of Work and Pensions in terms of benefit assessments. Um, and although we don't quite think of education as a backlog, uh, the catch-up challenge remains huge. And that's about people's lives in the same way that uh, the cost of living crisis is about people's lives. And I think uh, you'd be hard pressed to find anyone who thinks that um, the uh, interventions that the Chancellor announced, gosh, what would it have been a few weeks back now in terms of the energy crisis are anywhere close to genuinely alleviating the pressures that are going to be on particularly low income uh, families. So if I was on the political side, I'd be thinking well, I'm two years out of or, or around two years out of a general election. I'm about to put taxes up to one of the highest uh, levels, sustained levels they've been at. My spending, my size of the state is also uh, one of the largest it's been, certainly since the 80s, uh, in a, in a non-recession period. You put all of this out in the uh, in the Whitehall uh, monitor. Um, what on earth am I going to do in that period? Uh, but I do think there are two other things to think about in terms of uh, the public spending. Um, Firstly, I think we've got ourselves into this odd rut where we create a baseline for spending as 2010, as though in some way that's a magical correct level of spending that must always go upwards. And I'm a bit confused by that because I don't know what the evidence is that says that any particular level of spending is 
the right level of spending. And if you do it on that basis, you're just assuming that the size of the state is going to get bigger and bigger, our tax burden is going to get heavier and heavier, etc. So I think we slightly need to change the question and say, what is it we actually want from our public services? And what should we expect from our public services? And one of the things that the pandemic has done, I think, is to create a far greater expectation that the state will deal with anything and everything. And so I think there does need to be quite an honest conversation about whether that can remain to be the case. And, you know, we've done polling on this and people are not keen to increase their taxes. And there's not a lot of opportunity to spend more unless you're doing so. So so I think first you need to question whether. It's like uh, we have lost Charlotte there. We'll come back to. Uh, in a moment. Um, uh, what uh, what I was thinking as she was talking there was how um, she'd uh, uh, really interestingly blended the uh, high politics of the size of the state with the really geeky conversations that we have in the Institute for Government about baselines and uh, where you set your baselines. And uh, and and, and uh, for a lot of uh, what I monitor, we talked about 2010. Um, but while we're uh, trying to get Charlotte um, back, uh, William, I, I'm going to come to you. And uh, it does pick up on those points about the size of the state, because um, as, as we heard, civil service numbers have uh, have increased. Uh, they are back to where they were in 2010. Sorry, Charlotte. Um, uh, Rishi Sunak has um, uh, announced plans to reduce staff numbers to pre-pandemic levels. And there was an interview with the new Minister for Government Efficiency, uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg, over the weekend, suggesting that, um, uh, suggesting that he wanted to go further than uh, that. Um, William, is the civil service too big? Uh, how, with your sort of committee chair hat on, would you uh, would you go about working out which jobs to cut? And I'm going to throw in a popular comment from the uh, questions, uh, the Q&A uh, uh, section here, uh, as well about location. Ron Marchant has said, historically, relocation of jobs from London has been mainly frontline customer service jobs and not policy. Given the growth in policy-based jobs in London, will this require that policy jobs move out as well? So sort of which which... Is the civil service too big? If so, which jobs to cut? And do we need to be thinking more creatively about the location of jobs, particularly policy jobs? There's a few things in there, William. I always think there's a, there's a danger of arbitrary targets. Um, and, and really the question is, you know, what is the plan for the government to deliver its priorities? And, and how does it therefore its cloth um, accordingly? Um, I think your earlier graph showed this almost sort of the wave-like model it unjutted slightly in terms of overall numbers. And I suppose, you know, for my simplistic mind, uh, that's because we always have these debates and arguments as to are the civil service their own too big, therefore we must cut it. Then we have the same argument, but why are we reliant on these outsourced um, consultants? That, you know, it costs more money. We need to get rid of that. And those who um, uh, we really need to clean from within. And so you're going to have always have this undulation um, for, from one to another. Now, obviously, there's the sort of third party, um, DWP being a, a primary example in that, the health um, to, to, to uh, you know, a certain extent as well. And I suppose, therefore, as the pandemic affects, um, the, the need for those numbers will will reduce, and so you'll have a sort of uh, um, a reduction in, in in that sense. But I think really we get it from the the wrong yes too often. We get the raw numbers. That, well, it really is the um, is the government's um, priority. And um, in terms of um, location, this is this is an interesting one. Also, when I saw an advertisement for a job in in Darlington Treasury. Uh, and it, that uh, you go 100% from home. Uh, what's the point of that then? You know, the idea that you re, you know locate um, civil servants different part of the country, these sort of slight uh, apartments. The idea is sort of slightly pointed. You know, the idea are you you know trying to recruit from those local areas and draw people in there, or are you relocating people from from London? Um, or you know, and, and 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 this that this that and the other. And of course, the interesting is about policy. Uh, the, the, the question with that will be: Will, will the ministers work outside of London? Um, I somehow doubt it. There'll be you know, sort of you know, stately progresses from time to time of you know, uh, opening these new new hub centres. 
Um, but really, the, 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 the nature of policy such as it is, uh, will always have centralised aspects. There's no point pretending otherwise. Um, so I, I'm curious to um, uh, whether that works. I might be completely wrong on all that, by the way, but um, no, no minutes and seeing them at, at close quarters, I, I don't think they're going to change their habits um, too much. Thanks, William. It's definitely um, something we're keeping an eye on uh, in terms of where the ministers locate themselves. Um, and also, uh, you know, one very brief uh, story, the civil service uh, from talking to a civil servant the other day uh, is getting itself in an awful tangle about flexible working, remote working and home working and how the three are the same or different. So I think we can expect some more of these for the for the civil service cognoscenti anyway. But uh, Glenis, I'm going to move on to you and then Charlotte, I will come back to you uh, as you're now I can see back online. Um, Glenis, we talk we talk quite often in the it's very easy to get sucked into the centre of government and the sort of top of the policy civil service and number 10 and all of that. Um, but actually, there's a, there's a huge state out there that we uh, can't forget. And you've had all sorts of jobs in the um, uh, sort of curiously named arm's length bodies, ALBs uh, world. Um, they've been put under pressure by the pandemic as well. They've had to change uh, an awful lot. Media stress on public appointments. Um, uh, uh, they've, you know, you're the new head of a body that's been created to deal with new re repatriated responsibilities from um, leaving the um, European Union. So what do you think the government should be doing to, to reform the wider um, public sector, whether it's arm's length bodies uh, or the sort of huge um, uh, authorities that, that, um, that are so important to the running of the state? Glenis. Thank you. And that's such an interesting question. So uh, what I would say is that um, there's a sniff of public body reform about, isn't there? We had commitments last year to look at the way these bodies are governed and reviewed. But there's something upping the ante now, I feel, as we get over hopefully the worst of, of the COVID pandemic. But there are lessons from the past in as you think about public body reform. So we know that past reform programmes have usually struggled to reduce staffing. I think you've commented on that yourself at IFG and reducing funding as well. The number of bodies can reduce, but that's in part because some bodies emerge while you know, others take on new functions, for example. So it's not quite so straightforward. And I think that does make you question actually ahead of any reform of public bodies. You need to be pretty clear about what the objectives of reform are. But it's not a panacea, you know, it's not at all. Now, your report's making plain, I think, today that in your view, government needs to focus on, you know, delivery, delivery, uh, delivery. And that's music to my ears because that's what I've always been uh, involved in. Indeed, never have worked in Westminster. Not yet, anyway. Um, so I think, you know, the focus on delivery does lead to a pretty awkward question, and that is, is the civil service, is the public sector more widely actually able to support delivery sufficiently well, able to play the part it needs to play, not overplay it, but play its full part? And, you know, to my mind, you know, public bodies, they're, they're history. They really are. Their remit and objectives are often set in statutes that almost always predate our exit from the European Union. And then for regulators, I have some experience of those. And their regulatory approaches are often set and then they become concretized over time, actually, by their funding arrangements. So income from licensing, for example, uh, can get you fixed into licensing as your predominant regulatory approach. And, and even the very reason they regulate, uh, the regulatory objectives, they're often longstanding as well. And yet, you know, society or social, economic and the natural environment, they all change. They all change and work together over time, making it very difficult for these established bodies to, to change with it. Now, there are associated sort of skills and competence questions, really, as you focus on delivery. But I think that one of the most significant questions is actually about the configuration, the configuration of the public sector, the configuration of departments. So are departments and their arm's length bodies configured sufficiently well to deliver what they now what they now need to deliver? Is the organizational design or the operating model or each organization's objectives, you know, facing the future or, or more likely actually facing the past. And I do think these questions really need to be asked and answered. 
even though I know it's not at all straightforward. And in some cases, you definitely need legislation to, to bring about the change that you might you might wish for. There's a couple of other things I'd be thinking about if if I was uh, in Reese Mogg's shoes, for example. Uh, so COVID-19, as you point out so well in your report, it has accelerated digital transformation, not just here, actually, but globally. You know, it's been fantastic in, in that one sense. And of course, we've now got much greater public expectations because of that, you know, but that's perhaps another story. But some of our public sector legacy IT infrastructure really struggles now to meet the expectations of the public or, or to support basic delivery actually sufficiently well. Now, as you say in your report, you know, new management has given fresh energy to digital reform. But within IT, there is now an industry-wide digital skills gap. And the impact for the UK government is actually exacerbated by the salaries and the day rates that can be offered. So digital data and technology vacancies have risen alarmingly of late. I'm told that we've now got over 4,000 at the start of this year when it was half that at last year. And I do really urge government to look at that, look it in the face and find ways to, to address it. There may well be opportunities, for example, in the levelling up agenda or, or from home working, actually. But government does have to recognise that this pay gap for many departments and arms and bodies is now becoming really unbridgeable. So whilst digital reform matters, so do our legacy systems, actually. We have to keep tweaking them and we need good people to do that and we're not getting it. And then just another point about the way we work. Um, as we turn a focus on to delivery, thankfully, uh, I do think it puts government on the spot a bit to think how better to join up, you know, strategy, uh, policy and, and delivery in key areas. The environment, of course, being one that's dear to my heart. Um, so the state of the environment is directly and indirectly affected by by policies and actions of many departments. You know that, Alex. It's not just at DEFRA. Similarly, many of DEFRA's objectives and policies depend on the active cooperation with other departments. You know, there's so many of these cross-cutting issues. So we know that moving to a circular economy to reduce waste requires alignment of industrial strategy with, with bays and then improving air quality, so important, requires alignment uh, on transport, actually, with DFT and reducing the risk from hazards like the flooding we're seeing of late. It requires alignment on planning with the Department for Leveling Up Housing and Communities. Now, I know this is recognised. I know it's enormously difficult, actually, but now is the time for better arrangements for joining up, actually difficult though it is. And that starts with overarching governance, actually. You know, we need a governance framework in order to, to make that uh, happen. So I think I would actually urge government to prioritise delivery, as you are suggesting in your report. And if that is the case, then I do think there's a good argument for looking with a hard lens now, actually, at the configuration of departments and their arms length bodies. We certainly need to prop up our digital skills. You know, it's not just about transformational reform, it's about the day job. And I would argue above all, we just need to join up. But I, I know it's all enormously difficult. You know, of course I do. Uh, I'll, I'll stop there. Thanks, Glenys. Some some themes. I hope in the remaining time we've got, we'll come back to on digital uh, skills and um, uh, capability uh, on uh, civil service pay. Um, a, a perennial uh, question, uh, and and on the um, uh, sort of joining up of different government departments. And Charlotte, coming to you, picking up sort of from where you uh, where you left off. But I will uh, start uh, with the questions from uh, those who are watching, and it links to a bit to Glenys's point about joining up and. Uh, different departments. So there's a question from, as well as to what what you were saying about the um, uh, size of the state and the and the finances. Um, there's a question from Kerry about the implications of the tough financial position of the communities department or the department of levelling up housing and communities, um, biggest department with the biggest financial losses since 2010. Question mark says Kerry, given that <clears throat> the local councils will be crucial in delivering levelling up and net zero, the local government sector has lost huge capacity headcount since 2010. Uh, this must be a delivery risk for the government. And it was notable that the um, levelling up white paper came out about I think two days after we published 
Whitehall Monitor. So it was very interesting sort of looking at the, the two in, in, in comparison. I mean, picking up where you, where you left off, Charlotte, but also thinking about Kerry's question, what do you think? Yes, I think it's a great question. Um, and where I was saying previously that I think we've we've sort of created this, if you like, uh, dangerous straw man of saying that that must be a baseline of spending and anything that looks lower than it must must therefore equal a problem. I think the one area you could say where it really has had a tremendously negative impact and we do need more money is in local government. And you're right, I think I think the monitor says it's it's uh, its budget since 2010 is, is about half uh, what it was prior to that. Um, and of course, part of the challenge there is actually because most of that is being taken up now by social care, because despite having two white papers, uh, one on the funding and one on the delivery for social care, we are nowhere close to having a solution to the social care challenge nowhere close so so part of that challenge for local government is actually we need central government to get a grip with what it really means to try and solve the social care uh, crisis um but more than that in terms of the leveling up white paper as you mentioned alex i mean i think the best way to see the leveling up white paper is really a program for government or a sort of manifesto you know several people have said this i don't really think it is a a kind of program for uh DLUC. you know it is it is a program for the entirety of government and again and picking up on um dame glennis's comments which i thought were spot on around this we do get into dangerous territory when we only consider departmental budgets in isolation because the majority of the money that's going into levelling up and that levelling up white paper I think I saw someone said it's entire in its entirety because obviously it includes a lot of capital uh, investment and in infrastructure investment is about um, 250 uh, billion I think uh, going through it now clearly that isn't going through DLUC so I think we need to be a bit careful but I think the one area um, that I really would sort of sound a note of concern would be local government. And I also think it links to, uh, as a very final brief comment, because I, I know you want to get onto other questions, but I think it does link to the point about devolution and the relationship between the centre and the regions and local. And we haven't really touched on that. We've touched on the union, but actually I think there were some quite important observations of some of the dysfunction between the centre and, and local government uh, that the pandemic exposed. And the fact that actually, if you really want to level up, you're going to have to give much greater power, much greater resources to local government because levelling up as the government has framed it is a place-based uh, concept, and I don't think we're anywhere close to being where we need to be on that. Thanks, Charlotte. Really interesting. I'm going to move on. There are quite a few questions about sort of transparency and openness, and I might, William, uh, from your sort of committee chair perspective, and then and then Matthew as as, as a journalist. Uh, this question from anonymous that uh, he or she says is rhetorical, but has COVID nineteen aided or hindered government openness, honesty, uh, and integrity? Um, and then uh, an, an anonymous person says, um, which administration has been the most transparent? Does your comment about reducing transparency reflect the political hue of the administration? I'm not sure we need to get into the politics, William, because I, uh, uh, I'm interested in what you're going to say. But, but in terms of your perspective as a as a um, committee chair, uh, how open the government has been. Uh, I mean, Matthew said earlier there've been. Uh, some of the data and the uh, Office of National Statistics and so on has been uh, extremely open, whereas in other areas, as our report shows, FOI responses and, and, and so on, the picture's got uh, less transparent. So what's what's your perspective, William? Well, it was an hour to have uh, transparency questions from uh, anonymous questioners, but I'd leave that yes. to, uh, <laughs> to, to one side. Um, yes, it's a, it's a mixed picture. You know, the, the OS, as you alluded to, has had a quote pandemic um, and has, uh, you know, massive raft of, uh, of, of data uh, can be uh, you know, drilled down upon. Um, but then, of course, we have things <clears throat> that, that catch the eyes of my committee. Uh, I mean, it ranges from, you know, the MI clearhouse. Uh, some of this information comes to the late, uh, last information said about that. So, and overall, it's hard to deny that there is impression of um, of, of secrecy. And that's that sort of that's putting it as delicate and, and politically as I must. Um, and it's almost. Uh, it, to on some, you know, the disinfectants of sunlight by my colleague Dale Price, like say, a committee, is shone upon um, all of it. I, I think if it, this was a question that was, you know, a wider proprietary ethics issue, 
I think when I become the the, the chair, the chair of the committee a couple of years ago, um, I've seen very much as a sort of um, hobby horse, a sort of halo polish. Um, and it's become a much more mainstream um, concern. And I think that where we're at, regardless of people's different opinions on Partygate and other matters, where we're at, it's it a direct congruence to what um, happened to my, with my former league at and the, uh, and the vote that occurred on that. And I think quite suddenly, uh, it, it's gained the, the prominent attention of more people in my committee. Um, and I, I think that in terms of, uh, it sort of added to that sense of lack of openness, a slight um, secrecy. And I don't think that, that is a particularly good to have. Thanks, William. Uh, it may just be me, but there's a slight glitch on your sound there. I don't know. I hope people could um, uh, could could hear uh, that. I think we got most of uh, most of what you're saying. Certainly, the uh, the, the core of it. Um, I mean, Matthew, pick, picking up on that, and um, again, this is not the place to get into the uh, the ins and outs of uh, Partygate and so on. But there is. Uh, there are the questions about the uh, sort of openness and uh, integrity of the government and uh, how reliable it's, you know, the information it provides are. Uh, given the sorts of things about government effectiveness that we're talking about here, how do you think that the two intersect? Yes, I mean, just picking up your findings on FOI, um, I mean, I think and I know William's committee is looking at this. I mean, the, the government basically needs to make a choice about whether it wants to have an FOI regime or, or, or not uh, and and legislate accordingly. Because, you know, at the moment, what you've got is a, is a system which was sort of created, you know, the, the idea of creating a, a US-style system where, you know, where, you know, if you've ever filed an FOI request in the United States, you can get pretty much whatever you want. You get huge deposits of data. Uh, you, you have a legal framework which is intended to do that, meeting a culture, uh, that simply doesn't want to provide that sort of information, uh, coupled with the fact that it, it is, uh, you know, I, I can understand uh, the civil services frustration where it you know, becomes a sort of almost a question and answer system for any member of the public to ask, you know, whatever they fancy actually produces a sort of uh, a bit of a log jam. So, so, you know, there does need to be a, a sort of some candor and a rethink actually what, what what does the government want this system to achieve? What you know? What does Parliament want this system to achieve? And and create a system that does that? Because at the moment we have a bit of a a bit of a pantomime where, where you put in a request and it gets denied and sort of um, it, it doesn't really satisfy anybody. Um, the the broader question around government ethics, I think I think you know this is this does risk becoming you know a serious it is becoming a serious political problem for the government. I, I, and I think you can trace that if you you know if you were. On the ground in Cheshire Amersham or in, in North Shropshire, actually, this question of of, of sleaze and proprietary is is starting to, to to really inflict some damage. What I think what you have is you have um, you know a a, a, a culture of a sort of lax, laxness of the sort which which William has talked about uh, a, a culture in which um, you know the sort of administrative rules of government were held in low regard. You know, people like Dominic Cummings thought they were, they were an inhibition on, on effective government. You can have to debate about whether that's the case. Coupled with the fact that the pandemic did almost, you know, as a crisis situation, necessitate a much higher degree of, of waste uh, and risk than would be in, in the case of, of, of normal operations. Now, that, that required a new appeal to the benefit of the doubt to, 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 to say to the public, you know, we, we know for you know the HMRC knew, for example, that the 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 you know the business loan scheme would have a a, 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 a waste of somewhere between five and ten percent. It came out about eight percent. So, so 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 you know this waste is almost baked into the systems in the crisis because of the speed with which they have to respond. And government's problem is that it, it cannot appeal to moral authority and cannot ask for the benefit of the doubt because of the culture with which it went into the crisis. And so, and so you're starting to see a fusing of, 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 of those two things, which are really, I think, it, it, you know, it's becoming very, very dangerous for them. Really, uh, really interesting there. Um, Glenis, I'm going to ask you a brilliant IFG uh, event question. Um, uh, which is from uh, Anonymous again. Um, uh, but the pandemic demonstrated a clear demand for a diverse range of specialists. Is the time of the Whitehall generalist over? What do you think, Lennis? 
Thank you. Just before I answer that, could I say something about the transparency discussion? Because it was just so interesting. Can I? So I think there is a risk that we are judging government by sort of peacetime standards. Um, when the government would argue, you know, we were at war with a pandemic. And I think we just need to be a bit careful about that. And I would also say that, um, in my view, transparency is important, but there's a mistake to think it, it means trust. It isn't. If you're not transparent, you lose trust. But if you are transparent, you're not necessarily trusted. So I do think we need to understand what we expect from, from transparency, really. And I would say that uh, arms-length bodies, or some of them, um, Ofqual being one that I'm familiar with, have learned the hard way you know, what transparency really means. So it isn't just about FOI. These are very crude measures that we're, we're talking about here. Actually, it is being much more honest and open about how you make decisions, how and why you prioritise, you know, how these organisations work. And it is about actively listening to people that you may not agree with. You know, that's what actually builds trust ultimately. If you listen to their ideas, for example, and try and work them up into something that the best it can be, and maybe that person then realised actually it's not going to work, is it? But you know what I mean? It's as much about a much broader way of working than simply publishing your minutes of a board meeting. But I'll, I'll stop there. No, it's, it's, it's really interesting because I wanted to, uh, I'm gonna, before we come back to the generalist question, uh, I think we, we completely acknowledge the, um, the the crudeness of some of these. Right, these okay. And that's almost, it points to... Um, uh, the sort of uh, flip side of or the, the uh, companion to transparency, which is accountability. And Glenys, yeah. I would, I'd love to get your your thoughts on um, whether it's from an arms length body perspective or anything else. Whether the actual problem we're trying to grapple with here is accountability rather than transparency. It might well be. So the measures that you're using for transparency, I've said they're crude. They're proxy measures, aren't they? Yeah. Best. That's it. That's terrible. On accountability, I think you're right. And I, I suspect we've got quite a big problem, actually, that's been quietly brewing for a number of years. That accountability has become much less explicit, much more diffuse as well. And, you know, when you start trying to identify, for example, let's say, from my perspective, where are the policies relating to improving biodiversity in the environment and who is accountable and responsible, it's virtually impossible to map it, I have found and I'm not the only one. So there is a big issue, but my point I think is it's not just about, you know, four or five prime sectors of state and, and, and number 10, it's a much bigger issue for public service actually. And you get to the point where it matters when you actually want to hold people to account, you know, for delivery, which is where, where we're getting to, isn't it? On the generalist versus specialist, I think it's hugely interesting. I've always rather taken the view that people like to hear from specialists when we're in a crisis, that they believe them, they trust them. It is quite interesting. I remember years ago when I was uh, chief executive of what was then Animal Health, and you'll know we were dealing with a good number of, let's say, outbreaks of uh, avian influenza, you know, not that long ago. It was new to us all. We didn't want to hear from politicians, did we? In the public, we wanted to hear from the chief vet, you know, and our deputy chief vet. People trust our experts, and actually, I think in in times of COVID, they really have stood up. I mean, not just in terms of the public-facing work they've done, but in the work that's been done to develop vaccines, for example, the work that's been done to understand COVID and be able to treat patients more. We have seen experts really be valued I think in the last year or two and they do tend to get valued in, in a crisis but I've always taken the view in an arm's length body that you need a sufficient number of them and that the public trusts them rather than the CEO. So I think that's just my experience has told me that. Thank you. Thanks Dennis. Charlotte, um, you want to come in on the accountability points I think or anything else from Dennis? Then? Yes, a mixture of the accountability, transparency and this idea of generalists and specialists and I, I think they're one of my observations of um, the pandemic period and, and one of the things that we've written about and I think I think you have as well was that um, there wasn't a great deal of of articulation of the trade-offs involved and I think we became over dependent actually on COVID experts experts in infectious diseases in the you know kind of case numbers and transmissions and we almost ignored, certainly in the first phase, 
all of the knock-on impacts that solely focusing on that one area of specialism um, meant that you weren't picking up. So yes, we had the Treasury doing its economic stuff and that was great, but actually we ignored the mental health impacts. We basically turned off business as usual for uh, healthcare other than COVID. We clearly made a complete hash of the education uh, process. So I think there's something about actually understanding the role of experts, but actually needing to understand that in the context of a broader uh, set of decision making, which only elected official, only sorry, elected politicians should be able to do. And that is not a role for experts to be making decisions on behalf of the nation about things. They should be feeding into it. I think there's a risk of a kind of almost dereliction of duty on behalf of politicians if they just pass on those decisions. And just as a very final comment, um, I, I totally agree um, again on uh, <laughs> with Dan Glenis because um, I, I don't think transparency does equal trust. I do think competency can equal trust. And actually, there's quite a lot of evidence on that. And I think we've got this terrible situation where um, there's a there's been lots of question marks, let's put it delicately, about competency, which has then combined with this lack of transparency or at least a sense of opaqueness and of favouritism and the whiff of scandal as well as actual scandal. And that together has undermined trust. But I think the competency question, which comes back to the delivery questions and is the machinery of government fit for purpose to drive the agenda government wants to see, that I think is the core of whether we rebuild trust. Really interesting. Thank you, Charlotte. Um, William, what, what do you think of some of those points? Uh, I'm also going to throw in a, an extra an extra question as well, um, because I think it will it will, will give us a, a good sort of throwing forward uh, finish, which is whether you think the government's increased risk appetite following EU exit and COVID emergency response will change the nature of domestic policymaking in the future. I, I'm starting to questioning whether there is an increased risk appetite and uh, almost uh, uh, the the huge state interventions uh, has shown you know the power of government and has led to a reduced uh, risk appetite around some of these things. But anyway, that's a separate question. But William, thoughts on that well, and I, on kind of accountability? I think in respect of that question, I'd agree with you. I think there's less of an appetite for risk. Uh, but my reflection for Charlotte was so there. And one of the things we've not mentioned in this all, particularly, Ministers and you know, a bad woman blames tools, do they not? And too often, I'm struck by um, the civil service being um, unfairly, if I can say so, unfairly aligned. Whereas the actual issue has been the competency of ministers. And I entirely agree with what Barlow said about the, um, the need for ministers not to um, delegate or, or defer um, decision-making and to hide behind that because it's politically uh, convenient, um, so do. And I think those are the much more difficult question for politicians. And just just as there's um, training capacity and substantial training capacity within the service, so there is beginning to be um, for ministers, but I, I would say as a, uh, a conferred backbencher who merely just has to snipe from time to time. But I think it's one of those um, issues that, uh, that that ministers need to face and we, we, we shouldn't shy away from. Brilliant. Thank you, William. Uh, and I uh, refer uh, you and everybody to our ministers chapter in Whitehall Monitor, he says, doing the, uh, uh, doing the IFG uh, 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 branding uh, point. Again, I think we'll, uh, it's a minute to one o'clock. I want to finish on time. Uh, so I think we'll uh, leave it there. Thank you to a fantastic panel, really interesting uh, discussion. Uh, thanks also to all the colleagues across the IFG who drew together the Whitehall uh, Monitor this year. And uh, particularly to everybody who's uh, watched uh, online and those who've submitted questions. I'm sorry, I uh, couldn't get around to uh, answering all of them, but there were lots of really interesting ones in there. Um, we will put up a, a video and audio recordings of the, this event in the uh, usual places on our website and our uh, podcast uh, streams. Go to the website for uh, upcoming events. 
Uh, we touched on accountability there. We've got an event uh, next week, Thursday afternoon, uh, talking about uh, the accountability uh, of the civil service uh, and ministers and uh, whether we should put the civil service on a more statutory uh, basis. So uh, I'm looking forward to that one and lots of other events coming up at the Institute for Government. Thank you very much for watching and enjoy the rest of your week. Thank you for listening and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events. Thank you.